This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat in Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it is episode 683 of the Two Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I am your head, number one. My name is Matt Baum, and I grew up on a steady diet of extreme movie violence. So, call HBO if you want to register a complaint about my adult persona. I'm your head number two, the internet's Joe Patrick, and really, I just started watching horror movies because up until a surprisingly adult age, I found them too scary. It's true. It and normally, <laughs> normally this is where I would take uh, take issue with what Matt wrote to put in my mouth, but that's it's a hundred percent true, more or less accurate. In this episode, our sentient cosmic longbox returns with murderous vengeance to force us into reviewing and discussing eight classic back-issue comics based on a particularly gory theme. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week. Oh, sorry. I didn't say I'll just take it. After that, we're going to set you up with our must-read picks for next week. But now, it's time to fire up the chainsaw and put on the hockey mask because it's Back at you, review time! It's a cigarette! is upon us, so the Cosmic Longbox picked an appropriately terrifying theme. Back in the 80s and 90s, horror movies ruled the box office, but the one ingredient they needed for success was a big, bad, main murder monster. So this time, we'll be taking a look at what happened when our favorite famous leading slashers made the jump to comics. Matt, you're the deviant resident expert. Why don't we wander over to the haunted graveyard next door and talk about some horror comics? What could possibly go wrong? That's how they all start, right? Just a bad idea, a bad campsite, a bad lake, <laughs> a bad puzzle. My first review is Pinhead, number one from Epic Comics. This was 1993. It's written by D.G. Chickchester with art by Dario Carrasco. Or here's your setup. The very order of hell is threatened when a rogue Cenobite teams with one of Pinhead's underlings to bring about Leviathan's undoing and the unmaking of his Cenobite soldiers. Chrome cover by Kelly Jones. It's so cool. Is that what's going on in this comic? Yeah. For those of you not over 40, Epic Comics was a creator-owned imprint of Marvel's where creators were allowed to tell more adult-themed stories. Clive Barker agreed to license Hellraiser to Epic and oversaw the comic that would flesh out more of the Cenobites' history, their purpose, where the box came from, and other important story points. Short legal history here, Barker lost the rights to Hellraiser after making the f- writing and directing the first film based on his book, The Hellbound Heart. He recently got the rights back, so anything after Hellraiser 1 basically had nothing to do with Clive Barker, including this comic book. Here, D.G. Chickchester gets pretty wild with the plot, setting up a conspiracy to overthrow Pinhead and his boss, Leviathan. Several new Cenobites from previous epic comics fill out the cast, and even though this isn't Marvel, they do come off as horror superheroes, I suppose. The tough guy military Cenobite is terrible makes no sense tonally but he's here is that a is that a thing not from the movies (laughs) okay he's from the comics there's an inventor cenobite working on some kind of invention that ends up being a kid trapped in a cenobite body that kills himself to grease the gears of his invention with blood and his bones make the gears move and then the machine sends pinhead back in time where he meets an old West version of himself. Then that, it became a comedy. That was going through some kind of <laughs> Sioux pain, Sioux Indian pain ceremony. And of course, he has arrowheads in his head instead of pins. Claws. Because I guess he's a Native American Cenobite. Yeah, they I, didn't have pins back then. I don't know. <laughs> The only more complicated and messier thing than the plot here is the art. 
Some pages look almost scribbled to a finish. There's flashbacks done in like magentas and black, not red, mind you, almost pink magentas that make the design of some of the characters look borderline comical. The creative team was just in way over their head here. I I see them working. They're trying to write some kind of horror opus, but it gets lost in way too many details and really bad art. You can see their enthusiasm for the characters and the lore, but I would recommend reading some of the earlier Hellraiser comics overseen by Barker instead of the later epic comics like this Pinhead miniseries. I can only give this a leave it, and I love the Hellraiser mythos. This is bad. This is just bad. Uh, huh. So, full disclosure, I hate Hellraiser. <laughs> And not because it's gross or scary. I don't think it's scary or gross. I think it's just dumb. Uh, The lore doesn't make any sense. Don't come at me. Don't talk to me about the lore, Matt. I don't care. The lore doesn't make any sense. All, all, no. All that not not based on this comic. Not based on this uh, comic. No, no, no. Not based on this comic. uh, I agree. Which arguably has more real estate to talk about the lore of the Hellraiser universe, but no. So here's the thing. Um, Let me address that real quick because I I really wish they came in. Clive Barker came in with his original ideas for what he wanted Hellraiser to do. Those ideas were taken from him by the movie studio and something else happened with it so they explore Uh some cool ideas in the earlier comics by this time marvel has gone buck wild (laughs) with hellraiser so what you're saying is hellraiser the movie was not clive barker's original vision no hellraiser the movie was everything after the first one was not how did the movie studios change anything to do with the comics i don't get it because they bought the right no they didn't the movie oh. studios bought the rights Maybe to Hellraiser what you just and ran with the sequels. These epic oh, the comics sequels. Okay. were Clive Barker's ideas. He oversaw the sure. first few well, of them. Barker had lost the rights at this point. So, I mean, Marvel was probably just bouncing ideas off the movie studio. Hellraiser is dumb. Uh, the only thing Hellraiser has going for it, and I recognize this as a hot take. By definition, a hot take means I don't need you to explain to me why it's wrong. It's a hot take. Uh... The only thing Hellraiser has going for it is the design of the Cenobites because they're goofy and fun. Yeah, they're scary as hell. They're easily the best part. I totally agree. Giving me four different versions of Pinhead with different types of pins in his head is stupid. Yeah, it's really dumb. I like it, I thought I actually thought that the kid in the body of the Cenobite that greased the the that greased the gears of the torture of uh, the time machine with his own blood and guts was actually kind of neat. I was like, oh, that's fun. That's that's, that's that a, seems like a that good is a very Hellraiser moment. Definitely. That, that sounds like a decent idea. Right. For this kind of mythos. Um, the rest of it. Hard pass. Yeah. Hot garbage. The art <laughs> is bad. The story makes no sense. And the, the cowboy, Ugh. the Justice Riders version of the Cenobites yeah. is one of the dumbest things I've ever See, seen. And that's the thing. It's like. So that we know that there's been Cenobites all through time and stuff like that. This isn't a new thing. Why would they look different? But one, why would they look different? Yeah. Why are they Western themed? Why would they look like snake oil salesmen and sharpshooters right. and all that? Yeah, no. Other than a Marvel Comics writer who comes from a superhero background yeah. is doing this. And it's like, <laughs> like, I can't, like, I've seen Hellraiser exactly one time. And even I know that there's no reason on earth for Pinhead to look any different a hundred years ago no. than he does today. Even in the movies, None. they established like his character came out of World War One and yeah. was this guy that like saw all this yeah, suffering and this stuff. It's just like, like it, this is everything about this is a misstep it, except for the cover, which is a radical 1993 foil. Oh, the Kelly Jones cover, cover kicks in. With ass. Kelly Jones, beautiful Kelly Jones art. This is a huge leave it. Just look at it. Just go online and look at the cover. That's all you need. Yeah. Side note, there there is a whole Clive Barker, Alan Moore-esque Watchmen Hellraiser thing that happened where Clive Barker walked away and was like, screw you. I never want to talk about it again. <laughs> he got the rights back in 2021. We got a terrible Hulu movie this year and my heart is broken. I'm not saying that these books are any better, but there was a time where Clive Barker had a whole thing going with Marvel. Mm-hmm. In the early 90s but where he had they were uh, all Clive different. Barker, uh, 
uh, Razor line. Yeah, right. Ecto Razor Kid line. and stuff. And Ecto yeah. Kid, the hyper kind. Like, Clive Barker had his own thing going. Yeah, but those weren't great either. This was not, not a part no. of it. When it started, they were, it was Clive Barker's Hellraiser at Marvel. And then Clive Barker's name left the top of the book. And it was just Hellraiser. And then it was Pinhead. <laughs> it's, it's not often that I am preparing for this show. And I want to stop reading a comic book before I'm done. Yeah, this is bad. <laughs> but I almost stopped reading this halfway through and just said, I'm going to admit that I stopped reading. Yeah, it I'm was just going to admit. And if that means I can't review it, that's fine. But no, I read the whole damn thing and it's awful. Oh, that means leave it in case I didn't already say that. Speaking of comic books that belong to somebody else, like the former Clive Barker's Pinhead, <laughs> I present to you Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, you're saying that Freddy owns this? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> According to this cover, Freddy owned this. Uh, fair enough. It is Freddy Krueger apostrophe S's A Nightmare it's on Elm Street. It's Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this came from Marvel Comics uh, from 1989. Get a load of this creative team. It's written by Steve Gerber. It's got art by Rich Buckler and Alfredo Alcala, which are two names that are very impressive uh, if you are, were a Marvel and DC fan of the 1970s. Here's your solicit. Freddy Krueger's got a new enemy. Her name is Dr. Julian Quinn. That's Julian and Quinn, both with two N's. And you'll have problems going to sleep when you see how she forces patients in her sleep clinic to hunt down Freddy. That's not really the impression that I got, but all right. I we'll think get we get there eventually. I don't think it, that uh, does well, not happen she was here. Like, <laughs> I, think this, I think that this implies that like sinister goings on at the Julian Clint sleep clinic, which is not the case. There might be, but we just, I don't think we get there in this episode. Uh, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, plus, colon, a frightening tale of Freddy's life, dot, 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 before he quote unquote died. Uh, I was stunned to discover the existence of this Marvel magazine while preparing for this episode. Other than Savage Sword of Conan, I had no idea that Marvel was even putting out magazines as late as 1989. Not only that, I was blown away to find that industry legends Steve Gerber, Rich Buckler, and Alfredo Alcala worked on this project. The, the fact that their names are on this is just mind-boggling to me. I've only seen the first Nightmare movie, so I have no idea if this ties into any of the others. I don't think that it does no nah, i don't think so but both of the main characters do seem familiar with freddy's usual mo and uh so maybe there are other nightmare on elm street comics i don't know um and they're taking steps to stop him once and for all meanwhile we learn about the killer's tragic backstory which was so much worse than i was expecting holy crap oh yeah oh, oh yeah god Steve Gerber writes the hell out of this comic, blurring the lines between dreams and reality in a terrifying fashion. The black and white art by Buckler and Alcala is absolutely outstanding. It's moody and disturbing in all the best ways. I didn't even know that this magazine existed before yesterday, but I'm glad it ended up on my list because it was a blast to read. I'm giving this a buy it. It was great. So I don't think this came. I think this was pretty much like the first Nightmare on Elm Street comic that came out so well I, see i don't know i remember seeing ads for nightmare on elm street stuff in dc comics but i'm not sure if they were ads for comics or ads for something else i doubt it was because i don't think they're like we're, and that would have been prior to 1989 right and the and the first movie was like 1988 89 so this was a tie into marvel but even in the movies people know who freddie is like freddie's an, an urban myth right yeah and, but um but, and some people are trying uh, to prove that freddie is real you know yeah, it's just that, like, uh, this this doctor, Quinn, like, definitely knows that Freddy is a dream monster and right. she's trying to stop him. Right. And, like, the the parents come to the cops and they're like, oh, my God, my we don't know what happened to my daughter. And the cops are like, you sicko, she's all cut up. And they were like, the door was locked. We weren't even in there. And that's how the doctor gets involved. Like, oh, oh that sounds like Freddy at work, you know. So the doctor knows yeah. more than they're leading on. This was so good. Was I, really I good. was totally shocked. I didn't know this was the thing either. I was aware that at one point, like somebody put out Nightmare on the Elms on Elm Street comics. I did not know it was Marvel and just a straight up Marvel magazine. And it wasn't epic either. It was just Marvel magazine. 
there was no Epic magazine in 1989. I don't think like Marvel, Marvel had magazines in the uh, late seventies and eighties, but uh, in the nineties, their magazine output was very limited. Like I know they were still making savage sort of Conan, but other than that, like I said, I don't know what, I don't know if they had much else. Yeah. It's weird because like those were definitely Marvel magazines and like Epic was definitely around. I'm looking at their history. 1982 is when Epic was around. Well, Epic, the Epic as it, an imprint was around, yeah. but I don't believe that there was an Epic. There was not an Epic magazine. I don't in think 19- now my guess is maybe they wanted to get this into like grocery stores on magazine racks or something. I don't know. Oh, or, certainly. Yeah. Or, they or were trying to get it magazine racks people that weren't buying comics but this looks great it's super adult it's crazy violent steve friggin gerber wrote it howard the yeah. duck creator steve gerber wrote this yeah 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 <laughs> for it's, sure it's great they capture it perfectly the art kicks ass it's great black and white i would have loved to have seen it in cover in color but it still totally works. This is a huge buy yeah. for me. I love. I actually, I think it would have lost something in color. I think in black and white. Yeah, I maybe. Think the black and white maybe. makes it better. So you got to see uh, Nightmare on Elm Street two and three. They're great. Three is the Dream Warriors where the kids. Yeah, the Dream Warriors. Back. I oh. remember the bo- the V. Look, man, oh. the V. Like these boxes are all burned into my brain from wandering oh, the yeah. halls of uh, applause video. Oh man, so as good. a kid. So. Let's check in with a couple of other 80s mainstays that learn maybe it's good to have a friend when you're killing. I'm talking about Jason versus Leatherface. Number one. This <laughs> is from Topps Comics. Remember them? 1995. It's written by Nancy Collins, but she couldn't do the whole job, so she got plotter david imhoff to come in i'll put the plot both of those names both of those names are from somewhere else so collins is we've talked about her she wrote a series of horror vampire novels starring a character named uh sonia blue Uh, i thought she created anita blake no art by jeff butler with another kick ass cover by simon bisley god i love this cover Mm. here's your setup While the Friday the 13th movies followed some kind of continuity, Texas Chainsaw Massacre did quite the opposite. So it's only fitting that Collins and Imhoff chose to blaze their own trail here and tell a different kind of story. Yes, it's called Jason versus Leatherface. But as it turns out, this comic book is a (laughs) team-up. We first meet Jason. I mean, for now. Yeah. We first meet Jason chained in the depths of Crystal Lake until an evil corporation that had been dumping toxic waste into the lake decides to drain it to hide the evidence. And of course, build a new corporate headquarters in the backwoods of New Jersey. (laughs) After they dredge up Jason, his killing spree starts again and leads him to a train where he hitches a ride to Texas, only to meet Leatherface's whole creepy family. After a brief misunderstanding, they have a little fight, just like any good comic crossover does. The two decide to team up. Only here, they become friends through Jason recognizing Leatherface is the product of an abusive home, just like Jason was. (laughs) I mean, come on. Jason is welcomed into the family for his killing abilities, which are really well illustrated by the art team who give the book sort of a comedic, cartoony feel, but there's still plenty of extreme violence. (laughs) There's almost a tenderness to this Jason, who sees Leatherface as a kindred spirit, a victim of his own upbringing. It's definitely a new take on Jason's character, but who is to say that had he come face to face with Tobey Hooper's cannibalistic killer in the movies that he wouldn't have seen him as a friend. I get why when Jason meets Freddy, he does not like him at all. Freddy's a bully. Freddy's picking on Jason, you know? (laughs) Freddy tries to use Jason. That's why Jason versus Freddy. Leatherface, at his heart, is just a big kid that's really good at killing people with chainsaws. I had a lot more fun with this comic than I expected. It's ridiculous. Yes, but the creative team isn't taking the story too seriously at all and is having some fun here. I cannot say I expected an exploration of Jason's softer side and how two psychopaths can find friendship through exploring their abusive upbringing, but 
here it is. And spoiler, the end is really tragic. I ended up reading all three parts of this. So, I mean, it's an old comic. I, I'm not ruining anything. In the end, Jason is attacking Leatherface's family because he does not like the way Leatherface is treated. And Leatherface chooses his abusers over Jason. It's so sad. <laughs> And Jason, beaten and destroyed, upset that he doesn't have a friend, literally walks back to Crystal Lake <laughs> all by himself. It's so sad. It's like the opposite of that that Rambo movie when he finally goes home. <laughs> I'm giving this a buy it. I had a, I had a ton of fun with it. Boy, you know, I thought um, it was great. Okay, well. It was just so pleasantly surprising in the direction that they went. <laughs> All right, well, see, now, it seems to me that you're reviewing the whole series instead of the single issue, because I just stopped at this issue, and I really didn't like it. Well, even in this issue, they that's what they set up. Like, these guys are buddies. <laughs> no, I get it, but, like, the whole, like, tragic ending where it's, like, you know, fam like, the other face chooses his family and blah, 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 like, nah. I'm going to save most of my thoughts about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for my review coming up here. Um, I didn't really dig this. I'm going to give it a skim it. I thought it was okay. I thought the art was okay as well. Mostly, I just thought it was kind of silly. Yeah. But, so it's I mean, a skim it for me. Yeah. And, and like, and I, you know, look, Friday the 13th is kind of silly. The, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre definitely goes silly. It gets crazy silly. Like the first one was a student art film and it was terrifying, whatever. After that, off to the races. It's bizarre. And it pays no attention to any continuity whatsoever. So. <laughs> Jason Voorhees. Leatherface. Round one. Fight. Well... We mentioned it a second ago. Might as well get right into it. My next review is of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre number one from DC Wildstorm. The year was 2007. Uh, this is kind of the last gasp of Wildstorm. Within a couple of years, uh, they would be pretty much done as an imprint. And in another couple of years, they would be churning their characters out into the DC universe. <laughs> This is written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning with art by Wesley Craig. Here's your solicit. To coincide with the release of New Line's Texas Chainsaw Massacre colon, The Beginning. Get ready for the debut of a frightening new series that will explore the mystery that surrounds Travis County and the horrific Hewitt family. From the demented minds of writers Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, you know them from stuff like Majestic and the Legion of Superheroes. And Guardians of the Galaxy, but this that had not come out yet. And artist Wesley Craig, who at the time had only drawn a comic book called Touch, comes a tale of unparalleled terror and unique insight into small town America. Unique insight. Now, that is one way to put it, definitely. <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't really think there's anything particularly unique about it, but we'll get there. I have never seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Really? Yeah, no, I just, I haven't. You got to do that. You got to do that. It's a legit um, I good, mean, I guess it's a legit good, like original student B horror film. It's really sure. Uh, you know, for those that don't know, I may have mentioned it on the show before, but I don't remember. I've been on this kind of like a journey to bolster my horror movie resume, so to speak. Uh, I, 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 I'm going back and making up for lost time. And I made this list of 43 horror movies that uh, one for each year since my birth um texas chainsaw massacre came out was before i was born it did not make the list but i will add it to my to-do list so uh, all that said from my brief exposure to it this week in this book and matt's last book there's definitely only one way that i find it even remotely palatable <laughs> thankfully i feel like i kind of got the good one <laughs> Again, admitting that I am new to the property, the only way I think it really works is if it's told from the outside looking in. Here, writers Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning tell the story from the perspective of a group of federal agents that are investigating the horrific crimes committed in the original movie following the escape of the lone survivor, uh, whose name is not mentioned and I don't know it, but she's the girl in the truck at the end, I right. assume. Right. 
While we definitely do get all of the backwoods inbred hillbilly nonsense baked into the films, we're seeing it from the point of view of the outsiders that discover the horrors buried under the town of Fuller, Texas. I found this a lot more engaging than I think I would have uh, if Leatherface and his family had taken the lead. Instead, they're a looming presence that grows more and more disturbing as the end of the issue approaches. In fact, we only get a glimpse of Leatherface once in the prelude, and it's much more effective than having him be a constant throughout the issue. The art here is by a young Wesley, don't call me Wes, Craig, and it's really excellent. You can definitely see that he was already on the road to becoming the superstar artist of Deadly Class. I have zero affection for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. Not like nothing against it. Like I said, I just have not seen it. But I thought that this first issue did a great job setting up a new story in the aftermath of the original film. I'm giving this a buy it. So I also have zero affection for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise because the only one that's any good is the first one. It's what gave us Tobey Hooper. He, he was a great horror director, made Poltergeist, you know, like. You mean his name's not just Tobe? No. Because that's a bummer. His name is Tobey Hooper. <laughs> I just, I've just always had it in my head that his name is Tobe. No, regardless. <laughs> It's one of those films that's probably just better left alone, but they, we had to remake and it makes sequels and yada, yada, yada. And that's, and that's not how it works. It works really well because you only get glimpses into how this family lives. You only get glimpses of Leatherface and stuff like that because they couldn't afford to do it. They didn't have any money for special effects. So instead they cut up meat and cows and stuff like that, you know, and it, and it was gross and it was scary. And when Leatherface does show up, it's brutal. It's fast. It's terrifying. Dan, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning understand that and they do a much better job writing this comic book than the people that wrote the remake of this movie <laughs> because this remake is terrible absolutely terrible like oh you mean Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning yes it's just they tried to reset it and go back and like all right forget all the screwball stuff that they did in the you know 80s and 90s this is we're gonna get back to the real thing and like and they yeah, promptly right. water it down and use CG effects and it's you're just, not gonna we're, we don't want Matthew McConaughey yeah. and what who what was the other Renee one? Zellweger Anna? but we don't even talk Renee about that Zellweger yeah. <laughs> yeah that was the other new beginning I believe <laughs> no this comic is excellent and really well done and had they taken a track like this in the movie I think it would have been way more interesting like you bring in these cops to explore the cold case and it turns out some stuff was covered up and there's still shit going on like that's interesting we don't get anything like that in the movie movie leave it this comic i'm giving it a buy it this was really well done i do think it's way more interesting to have this kind of outsider coming in and, and, and like seeing the horrors within kind of thing rather than it being from like the perspective of the wacky family sitting up at the dinner table with all of the severed hands right. and feet that's what you get that's and, what you get with the last comic we just reviewed they were doing yeah. something different there that was the story of jason and leatherface this is the story of the crime and like, and like what happened in the town and so, and what's still going on and shit like that. That's why I think it works here really well. Yeah. I, mean, I, movies, guess, I guess what I was asking, ugh. what I was asking for is like, um, is for you to correct me if I was wrong, but that that's kind of what that movie is, right? Is it's more about like the family happening upon these people. And it's kind of, it's not really being told from the survivor's standpoint no it's, it's being definitely told from no it's told from the survivor's stand the whole movie is told from the girl that gets away standpoint mm. so like she is traveling with her friends there's this hitchhiker that turns out to be a crazy person the hitchhiker is works with the family to trap people to come in to the house they cut them up and sell them as meat <laughs> they're cannibals <laughs> like that's their whole shebang so grody yeah what happened was true The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. We know that Freddy and Leatherface, Pinhead and Jason are big and terrifying, but small things can be terrifying too, Joe. I'm talking about Chucky, That's number right. one. Not me. I'm talking about Chucky. All right. This is I from, wasn't even going to say anything. It's from Devil's Due Productions, 2007. Remember them? 
This is written by, yeah, and we have to call. I'm glad that we're. I'm glad that we're like saying the name instead of saying DDP because yeah. people are going to think we're talking about Diamond Dallas Page. Yeah, I'm sure they would. This is written by horror master Brian yeah. Polito. I mean, yeah. I have to call him that because that's what it says in the cover. So, yeah, yeah, it like saying it's like saying it's Freddy Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on yeah. Elm Street. It's, it's it's what it's called with art by Josh Medores. Here is your actual solicit. Before he was trapped in the body of a good guy doll by voodoo magic. That is what happened. Charles, Charles Lee Ray was the Lakeshore Strangler. And here he returns to the scene of his original crimes. The woods of Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> to kill again and get revenge from the cop he blames for his cursed existence. That's right. You heard me say the woods of Chicago, Illinois where horror master Brian Polito may never have actually visited because there's a city there, pretty big one, and uh, no wooded areas by lakes that I know uh, of, but whatever. I mean, you know, maybe it's like, uh, you know, Michael Bay Michael Bay thinks that there's a dusty old desert outside the Smithsonian. I mean, you, you know, gotta, maybe it's you, that kind of thing. You, I'm not saying there isn't a big lake. There is. You definitely got to leave Chicago to get to the woods. <laughs> one might call it a great lake. Yeah. <laughs> Here, Chucky kills some kids, makes some bad jokes in true Chucky style, and then he goes after the cop that foiled his first killing spree in Child's Play 1. Now, I was never a fan of Lady Death and evil Ernie creator Brian Polito's Chaos Comics work, but I will say he is definitely the perfect creator to write Chucky's further adventures. It's probably just too bad that he couldn't be bothered to draw this comic too, because... While I wasn't also a fan of his art, he's definitely better than Medor, who makes some bad and bold choices with hairstyles, has some real problem with eyes and faces. Some of the action barely makes any sense on the page whatsoever. And the only thing that I think he pulled off well were his Chucky close-ups. Okay, yes. Yeah. All right, thank you. There's, All right. there's a couple Chucky close-ups that look pretty good. He got that right, you know? But there's like scenes where like, Chucky's killing the kids and they're all running. And it turns out Chucky put bear traps out and a guy steps in one. And he's like, ah, and then the next panel is like a girl's face just getting like mutilated right, by the falling like, down. Did right, she yeah. fall? Did it fly up in the air? Yep, What's happening? The same, same exact note. I didn't actually write anything down, but I had the exact same note. Yeah, And it's like, look, we're willing to swallow a lot of these horror movies. Jason is a shambling monster that literally can't be killed. Fine. Leatherface is a big, crazy dude, the chainsaw, but he just kind of sticks around, you know, Texas and Jason just kind of hangs around Crystal Lake, right? Pinhead and the gang get transported places by the boxes. How the, how did Jason how does Chucky get, to- get anywhere? Like, does he have to wait for kids to pick him up and accidentally take him to the right place? <laughs> and if that happens, he walks around in his tiny little legs. Was he like, hey, kid, I'm your friend? He's like, oh, Chuck, you can talk. He's like, yeah, I can. Let's get some bear traps. And the kid's like, what for? And he's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> I mean, you've seen Child's Play. What's happening? He gets around, he think guy gets around fast. I guess. I've just, I've always had a problem with the logistics of Chucky. Matt, he's got voodoo speed. <laughs> but I digress. So Chucky creator Don Mancini had a similar fate that Clive Barker had with Hellraiser, where he lost control of the creation. They made a bunch of really terrible Chucky movies. He came back in 2017 and made Cult of Chucky, which was actually charming and a lot of fun. He's the guy behind the new sci-fi series that is pretty good. So there's good Chucky stuff out there. Don't watch the most recent remake with uh, Mark Hamill as the voice. It was terrible. Ugh. This comic, however, is not the product of what I would call a, quote, horror master. And all you have to do to not have a line like that in your comics review is not call yourself one on the cover. So Don't put it there. Yeah. I'm giving this a leave it. I have seen Child's Play. It was on my list. Uh, so I watched it this year. It's charming in its way. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a fun movie that I needed. To, I needed exactly one of. I'm not taking anything away from any of the sequels, whether they're good or bad or what. I don't care. Um, I've heard good things about the show again, not seen it, whatever <laughs> that said, <laughs> Brian Polito is terrible. He's terrible. <laughs> Brian Polito is not a good writer. I'm sorry. Look, 
Nobody is more sworn to the black than Brian Polito. No. No, everybody knows it. And I get it. It's how he made his money. And I know people, so there's people out there that enjoyed it. And that is fine. Still today. That's there fine. There are people out there that swear by Brian Polito and yep. Chaos Comics. I am not and have never, ever been one. And um, he's not a he's not a good writer. Sorry. No. Uh, this comic is terrible. Um, the art... Um, at, at first, I was like, when you started talking about how bad the art was, I was like, oh, I didn't think it was that bad. And then you got to the part about how the actual, um, you know, drawings of Chucky looked OK. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, maybe I was flim flammed by the uh, close up Chucky stuff. It was the only redeeming I, parts. <laughs> but yeah, all, but yeah, it's 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 the mess. It's a mess. Yeah, it's a leave it. This comic book is bad. Sorry, Jack. Chucky's back. Now say what you will about anything else we've talked about so far, but we can all agree that Halloween is a true horror classic. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Halloween is in my top five favorite films. Like, okay. Not horror. There you I'm talking one of my top five favorite films. I love John Carpenter. Okay, well then, you're in luck. Just in time for what I assume was the release of Halloween H2O. <laughs> I believe it was, yes. Uh, I don't know when H2O, I, I mean, how, H2O must have been the 20th anniversary, right? Yeah, that's why they call it H2O. Not because there okay. was a bunch of water in it. <laughs> right. Uh, so this is the ten, 10 years after H2O. So just in time for the Rob Zombie Halloween. How about that? We got... Halloween, 30 Years of Terror. It was a one-shot from Devil's Due, a.k.a. DDP. The year was 2008. It's written by Stephen Hutchinson with art by Various. Here's your solicit. Gaze into the shocking story of the first death of Laurie Strode as writer Stephen Hutchinson unfurls a collection of all new Halloween stories from the horrifying miniseries along with the entire Halloween 30 years of terror giant size one shot. Ah, all right. Let's, there's the rub. Let's settle down. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Um, this is the, this solicit is incorrect because uh, I believe this is the solicit for the trade because it's talking about the first death of Laurie Strode, which is not a story in this anthology. A collection of all new Halloween stories from the miniseries, along with the Halloween 30 Years of Terror one shot. So this oh, is a gotcha, solicit. Gotcha. All right. This is a solicit for the trade mistakenly attributed to the one shot. Sorry about that, guys. That's how it was. This was still on the Diamond site. Devils do put out this anthology one shot celebrating Halloween's 30th anniversary in 2008. And like most of the installments in said franchise, it's mediocre at best. This is the rare anthology with a singular voice as far as the scripts go. And the stories range from, okay, I guess, to impossible to follow. <laughs> for example, the lead story, Trick or Treat, features an elderly woman who turns to putting razor blades in candy following the death of her husband. But I don't know if she knows she's doing it. I think that's what's going yeah, on. I yeah, think it, I don't think she knew she was doing it. It's also unclear whether it's even really happening or what her motivation is or what Michael Myers has to do with it other than proximity because it takes place the year after the Haddonfield murders. I think they're going for like a, oh, Michael's been here and murdered some people that like we're uh, all messed up now. You let's know, not, like, ah! let's not give them any, <laughs> let's not give them any rope to hang themselves with Matt. Like, like it's not our job to do that. Every well, thing. they followed suit with that in the movies. So it became a thing. Well, sort of, that's like, fair. Yeah. Yes. POV, which is uh, another story. Uh, well, <laughs> Is it a POV, story? <laughs> POV has uh, no story to speak of at all. <laughs> and the less said about Tommy and the boogeyman, the better. It's just gross. And while this one shot does feature some strong art from the likes of Daniel Zazelge, what? Why? And Brett Weldell on two of the stories, the rest of the art is nothing to write home about. Halloween 30 Years of Terror does feature some promising work, but it could have benefited from either 
some additional creative voices in terms of the writing or any kind of direction whatsoever. I'm giving it a skim it because it's not terrible. No, it's just that like I read it and I was like, there are two stories in here that I liked and the rest of them I can do without. Yeah. And I'm with you. This is a skim it from me. It's an anthology. There is some talent here, but you got to also take into account where the Halloween franchise was at this time. And it had gone through a lot of shit, Joe, (laughs) a lot of shit. So I will, I will give them a little credit for showing, I guess, some (laughs) self-control and sort of trying to just focus on the Michael Myers murderer and the, you know, pain and suffering that was caused to Haddonfield, that aspect of it. They didn't go into the satanic cult. They didn't go into Michael's psychic little sister. They didn't go <laughs> any of that bullshit. You know? Yeah, like I thought I thought maybe the woman like with the pumpkin imagery, I thought maybe and, and I and again I know that it's not what it is actually about in the movie, but with the pumpkin imagery, I thought maybe it was kind of like trying to tie in Halloween three. No, I think they were okay, so I think they were trying to insinuate that she was one of the girls that knew Lori's friend that was killed. Feels- no, this gal was who who is I'm sorry. I forgive me. You may have been talking about a different story. I was talking about the trick-or-treat one. Were you talking about this insane asylum lady? Oh, you're right. I was talking about the insane asylum lady. My bad. I thought that that was supposed to be Lori. No, I don't think it was. It was, I think it was one of the friends that kept seeing the friend that died and blaming herself. It may have See, been Lori. again, impossible. Yeah. Some story, impossible to tell what's going yeah, on. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, they tried to play it loose and fun. And you know what? I take it all back. This anthology may have been more fun. Had they just visited all the wacky, stupid shit that all the Halloween movies did. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'd give this a skim it. There was some good art. Some of it was okay. Some of it was a little too artsy and fartsy. I, I'll say that. <laughs> I will, I'll say this. I, I bet the Tommy and the Boogeyman story, which apparently is about a guy getting inspired by the world's worst EC comics ripoff to draw comic books about Michael Myers or something. So Tommy is does objectively terrible. That is one of the comic books that Tommy is reading in the first movie. It's like a made up comic book. Oh, because the adult's name was also Tommy. Yes. The guy that gets yelled at by his wife is named Thomas. Exactly. That's, um, that's Tommy grown up. Oh, what the, what the <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. They connected everything, Joe. Now it's all here. I'm actually angrier. All the spider webs connect. Now I'm more upset. Halloween night, a small American town, 15 years ago. I'm going to stick with my theme of scary little things, and we're going to talk about Puppet Master, (laughs) number four, from Action Lab, Danger Zone. This is written by Sean Gabarin with art by Michaela Dasako. Here's your solicit. Thank you, uh, previews. Great jumping on point for new readers. The rebirth starts here. After a lifetime of being manipulated by a succession of masters, Andre Toulon's puppets may have finally found a way out. Is the psychic Madame Andon the savior they've been looking for? And if so, what is the price of freedom? I chose number four because this was the first issue of the story that really set the puppet master mythos on like a new path. The first four issues were just kids getting killed in the abandoned hotel where the puppet masters living puppets had been hiding out. That sort of followed a lot of the movies later on in the movies. They kind of fleshed out that like the hotel was also magic and the, and the puppets themselves brought magic to the place. And some of them saw them as angels and others as demons. And like they did some creative stuff in the movies. So Full Angels to some, demons <laughs> to others. So, full disclosure, I love the Full Moon Puppet Master films. And it's clear that this creative team does it says too. a lot about you, quite <laughs> frankly. Here they're adding a whole new aspect to the story and giving the puppets and to Loon himself, also trapped in a puppet body at this time, a possible way back to their humanity. Gabarin is building a larger story for the living puppets, introducing this mysterious psychic that not only understands how the puppets work, but the dark magic that's behind them. DeSacco's art is pretty decent here. They're not doing anything incredible. They know their own limits, and they keep the story moving very well, sticking with their strengths. The creepy puppets are perfect, and honestly, 
they might do a better job here making them look like convincing killers than they did in the movies. <laughs> the movies, they didn't have a lot of money to work with, so it was kind of silly when a puppet killed somebody. While waiting for a late plane this week, I ended up reading the first eight issues of this series, and I really liked it. There's a charm here that comes from a creative team that obviously has real reverence for the full moon B movies, and I can appreciate that. Now, I fully admit, you might have to be a fan to get into this, but <laughs> they took this job seriously, and they did a good job with it. I'm giving this a buy it. Okay, where do I begin? Okay, uh, uh- I will uh, again admit I have never seen Puppet Master, so they're fun. They're I, fun. They're it's they're, fine. Like I haven't totally seen a lot of movies. You know what? I haven't seen a lot of movies based on com- comics based movies. on movies. I'm just gonna say this right off the bat: the art is decent. Is a laughable phrase. No, it's not bad. It's, it's not, not good. It's not good. No. Um, I, I will say this: the puppets looked like the puppets yeah. from the movie. Yeah, the puppets are accurate to the movie. Yeah, like I mean, there was nothing wrong with like the way they drew people. I mean, like people weren't. It wasn't like the some of the previous issues we had, where it's like, what is that? What is that person doing? What is that person looking? You know at? what? Yeah, I <laughs> guess maybe it's all just kind of a blur to me. I guess the art is. I, I I've seen worse. Yeah, this is perfectly this serviceable. This is perfectly serviceable comic. Um. Book. But it's also very amateur hour. Uh, it, it's not very polished. No. Um, I will say, like, there's one scene where is the puppet's name actually Hook? Is that his name? He has a hook for a hand, but he also has a knife, so they call him Blade. There's a fun little scene where he does this maneuver with his hook where he grapples on a guy's eyelid <laughs> and then and then hacks him in his face with yeah. his knife hand. I was good. like, oh, that's kind of fun. Good yeah. job. I thought that the story was kind of nifty uh, in terms of like this gal kind of renting out the puppets for people to exact their own revenge well, or whatever. Has, she has two of them that she's. Well, that and she's that's been the thing, right? Is that it, and if that had been the entire premise of Puppet Master, I would have been like, cool, this is fun. However, there's an added wrinkle that there are actually all of these other puppets just kicking it somewhere else that are like, Oh, we need to get in on that. Action. They've been hiding out. That's what all the movies are about. This like uh, back in world see, war two. And, like, and I just thought that that was like, that was so much more complicated than it needed to be. Well, um, but again, not the comics fault. Yeah. The comics dealing with the Lord's got. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to give this a skim it because the art is not great. I'm sorry. That, that's um, fine. but I did think that the story was kind of fun. Um, yeah, it's a skim. Blade. Ms. Leach. Jester. And Tunneler. And William Hickey as the Puppet Master. I have never been so happy to say that this is our last review of the week. Oh, come on. You had fun. You would admit you had fun. Uh, <laughs> all right. It all ends with Friday the 13th, Abuser and the Abused. It was a one shot from DC Wildstorm 2008. At the end of their kind of independent little lifespan, Wildstorm had this weird their line like of, horror well, line. If you looked at it like in the back of this comic, it had like Jim Lee with his little letters column and the Wildstorm checklist. And it, I looked at the checklist and like, what are you putting out? <laughs> yeah. What happened to this? It was, it, it was like, this was back when or this is probably a little bit after actually where um, they were like, they totally rebranded Stormwatch as like a, as like a cop. Yeah. It was like Stormwatch PhD, which yeah. it like, Okay, I thought they were all professors. Turns out they're police. <laughs> you know? so, Post-human division. Yeah. Post-human division. So here's your in-stores April from Stormwatch. Gen 13, number 19. Gail Simone had just taken over. Number of the Beast, number one and two. Don't know what that is. Which was not a horror. Con- I mean, it was a. It was something to do. It was something, yeah. some crossover thing, I think they had. Midnighter, called. Ex Machina, Friday the 13th, Abuser and the Abuse, Secret History of the Authority, Hawksmoor. So, like, you know, a lot of stuff going on here. The new Dynamax, whatever that is, the program. World of Warcraft number six. <laughs> oh, yeah. They were doing a lot of licensed books. <laughs> what were they doing? doing they're just throwing anything yeah. i think dc was just like yeah we got a place for licensed books we'll just throw, throw them in wild storm yeah right exactly 
This was written by Joshua Hale Fielkov with art by Andy B. Here's your solicit. A special one shot. Maggie's life was never easy, but her abusive new boyfriend has pushed her over the edge. As her life spirals out of control, she hits upon the solution to her problems. Use the local urban legend to quote unquote solve the problems in her life. But what happens when she learns that there's very little legend in the reality of Jason Voorhees? Abuser and the Abused is a story about what makes a monster, or at least what has the potential to make a monster, and what happens when that monster, born out of humanity, meets one that transcends it. Joshua Hale Fielkov, remember that dude? Definitely has something to say here. Maggie is driven over the edge, and it isn't surprising to see her broken mind turn to murder. What is surprising is that she proves to be a physical match for the capital M monster that is Jason Voorhees until she isn't. I guess that's a spoiler, but having Maggie succumb to Jason just uh, like anyone else would made me wonder what the point of the story was supposed to be. There's no lesson here about how other creatures like Jason can be born out of abuse. He just kills her like he's killed everyone else he's ever met. And that's it. I'm not saying that I was hoping for a kindred spirits, bride of Chucky type thing to happen, but I certainly thought we'd get something more profound than what we ended up with. I found the art by Andy B to be conflicting. On the one hand, I really like the actual style. It reminded me a lot of Evan Dorkin's work with an almost Jason the Animated Series vibe. Uh, if you check out his work on his comic Dork, you'll see what I mean there. The color work by Darlene Royer is fantastic, using the classic Bende dot style of a bygone era. That said, I didn't need the titillation at all in terms of the sex or the violence. The slasher gore is one thing. It's fine. And I know that it's a trope of the genre. Uh, so I'm not being a prude here, but I yeah, found that I'm not. No. <laughs> I found the constant cleavage bra and upskirt shots of the main character to be at odds with the fact that this was a story about a young woman that has been abused at every turn, trying and failing to find justice. It's gross. And maybe this is just me, but I don't really need to actually see a character getting beaten to understand that they are physically abused, especially not a teenage girl. Don't ever show it. I don't care. That's the wrong. That came out wrong. I do care. <laughs> I just like I don't like they 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 handle it more effectively in the scene where she goes home to her drunk stepmom who has a black eye. It's like okay, I didn't see. I didn't need to see the dad throw a punch to know that she's abused. I didn't need to see the boyfriend actually literally punching Maggie in the face in the opening pages. I didn't need it. Friday the 13th, Abuser and the Abused is a horror comic with a message. I just don't know if that message got across all the way. I'm going to give it a skim it. Uh, the message doesn't get across. The message doesn't make any sense. And I love the art. I think the art is fantastic. They did a great yeah. job here. And I'm you know, like, yeah, I get like this was when this came out. Wildstorm was still trading in a lot of the same titillation. Friday the 13th was full of nudity, you know, like all of them were. Yeah. No. And like I said, I understand all of that. Yeah. It's just that like, because of what this comic no, I'm getting is there. I'm getting about, there. I'm on your yeah. side. Is what, is no, what no, I'm I know. Saying. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Like this doesn't. So Friday the 13th is mean spirited. It's always been mean spirited. The idea being, well, Jason can't enjoy frolicking and and casual sex and and you know slutty dudes and loose women like so he kills them right that's that's what he does it's part of the thing mom beat into his head like those are all sins and he's like i don't know what else to do and he murders him but like it's not to learn a lesson it's mean spirit in the sense that like well he's doing it wrong he's the ultimate the sin eater type thing right that is not here i mean i guess we see jason as jason it makes sense to me that he would kill her because he is a killing machine and she is a girl in a bra and she like, he doesn't know anything about her abuse and stuff like that. But what do we learn through that? Like why give us the rest of her personal story to get to that? I guess. It, it, uh, like, I think it, that it if this comic, anything. <laughs> if, if this comic, right, exactly. If this comic had ended on a cliffhanger note, 
where uh, like a like a Jason versus Leatherface style like and yeah. now they're friends. That's where I was about to go with. I would have been like, okay. I don't know if I would have liked that either, to be perfectly honest. But that would have made more sense. It would have made more sense if you if you're trying to teach a lesson like this. And I would even forgive, you know, like the beating scenes and stuff like that. Like, yeah, horror movies make you look at horrible shit, man. That's what they do. And if if that's what it takes to get to a point where Jason's like, yeah, this girl is fucked up. We can go kill people together. And he puts a little mask on her and whatever. Cheese ball, fine, whatever. Yeah, I, don't care. I mean, that, it's a personal thing. I don't need to see abused women actually yeah. being abused. So this just kind of got lost in whatever story in like the lesson that it was trying to teach us. I guess the art is f-ing great. The last page kicks ass. <laughs> you know, like hey, She's decapitated and he's carrying her body and there's a full moon and blood everywhere. Like, yeah, that's Friday the 13th, man. Love it. But it's a skim. It. It, they just tried too hard. They tried too hard to give us this heady story that doesn't work. Yeah. You don't need to do that. Just just tell me a Jason story. I'll be fine. With this yeah, art, I, tell me a cheeseball Jason story. With this art, I'm fine. It'd be a full body. Or, like, you could have told me a, a Jason story with a message, but you let the message get lost in the concept yeah, I think of just the franchise. Trying too hard. That's all it was. Yeah. If you want to know more about the comics we just discussed, check out our show notes where you can find links and more info on comics that Joe deems appropriate for all ages because the ladies <laughs> are fully clothed. Thank you. And hit us up on our Discord to give us your thoughts on these books. Joe Patrick, before we move on, we need to pick one of these blood-soaked comics to enter the THN Permanent Collection. I'm choosing Freddy Krueger's A Nightmare on Elm Street because it's in black and white and therefore you can't see the blood <laughs> you cry baby no, no I, I am it's too it's just though. legit it's, it's awesome it's, it's the so best good. looking comic we. it's the best looking and best written comic that we just like read and it stays perfectly true to the spirit of the movie it gives us insight on the character you know like it does exactly what it's supposed to do it's a great book I, I can't believe I've never read it before I really like it I want to find that magazine <laughs> it's really good yeah, I think it was. I think there are three chap. I think there are three of them. It's a, it's a, it's a magazine miniseries, yeah. if you will. There's no way they have the rights anymore, so it is not reprinted. I guarantee. It. No, you're gonna have to find it. Okay, I am literally covered in gore. Yeah, it's even in my mouth, and this cannot be sanitary. <laughs> <laughs> Let's head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, which also doubles as our Mole Man Morgue, and take turns spraying the blood and guts off each other. And before you ask, mole men die all the time, so yes, we built the morgue for autopsies, complete with a giant floor drain. We're it's not just sickos. Practical. Yes, we're not sickos, all right? No, no. Matt, why don't you strip down and tell these nerds about your must-read pick for November the second. All right. I don't want to affect your, I don't want to offend your puritanical, you know, whatever, but look, this is clinical. <laughs> Just get naked. My pick for next week is cross gen tales. Number one from Marvel. It's three 99. It's written by Mark Wade. It's got art by Butch Geis and Paco Medina. Here is your solicit. Surprising tales from a universe of fantasy, folklore, and science fiction. The debut issues of four of the signature titles from the 21st century's most innovative imprint and some of the biggest names in comics offer a window into other worlds. In Ruse, 2001, number one, Detective Simon Archer and his assistant Emma Bishop face magic and mystery in the Victorian-esque planet Arcadia. In Mystic, 2000, meet sisters Genevieve and Giselle. One is a sorceress. One is a socialite. But their destinies are about to be transformed. In Sigil 2000, number one, a planetary union is locked in a centuries-long war with the star-faring Saurians. And in Sojourn 2001, number one, the archer Arwen and her allies fight for survival in the shadow of the undead dictator Mordath. But who are the Sigil Bearers who unite these four stories? So cross-gen, it was a whole thing. We are definitely going to do a cross-gen cosmic long box and just revisit these comics because they are so much fun. It was, it was this wonderful imprint that had a bunch of money behind it and a neat little idea. We're going to get creators and let them tell whatever the hell story they want. They're in charge of everything. Go, you guys. It was perfect. It was a utopia. Nothing could possibly go wrong with cross-gen comics. 
until they completely ran out of money and it went belly up because it wasn't selling the way they would hoped and uh, they had spent a shitload of money promoting stuff. So cross-gen, it was too beautiful for this world. This is a fun chance to check these comics out. My pick for next week goes to The Ones, number one. It's from Dark Horse. It's $4.99. It's written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Jacob Edgar. You just can't Here's your solicit. this guy, can you? And you talk so much smack, but you can't we're gonna, quit him. We're going to get there. <laughs> Don't right. you worry All about right. it. From Eisner Award-winning writer Brian Michael Bendis comes the next best awesome super team to end all super teams. The Ones. Every single person in every mythology that was told they were the one are brought together for the first time to defeat the one, the actual one, the real actual one. This amazing new vision is brought to life by wonderkind artist and co-creator Jacob Edgar, who has drawn things like Batman and Army of Darkness. Watch as he brings explosive comics splendor to this big new world. Hey, they're really talking Jason up, which is nice. Yeah. Think Good Omens meets Ghostbusters meets The Atom Project. Okay. Meets The Goonies meets Everything Everywhere All at Once meets um, anything else you've ever liked. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, I know, I know, I know, Bendis. Second of all, um, I do kind of like this idea that it's this super team of people that were all told that they are the chosen one. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's cute. Which is a neat idea. Sure. Um, Third of all, the real reason why I picked this is has nothing to do with either of those things. Um, it has everything to do with the fact that I sort of know Jacob Edgar and I had no idea that he was a comic book artist. How do you until sort of know this person? I belong to a movie group on Facebook and he is a member and we were just casually talking with the other members one day and we like shared our Instagram handles and we're like, yeah, let's talk about each other's art. You know, let's, let's support each other. And, and for the most part, it's people like me that just do it for fun. Some people do it for a living. And then I get to his Instagram and it's like, and here's the thing I drew for the Batman Adventures comic. Oh, wow. <laughs> and here's the thing that I'm drawing with Brian Michael Bendis. I'm oh, like, wow. You didn't tell anybody that you were this comic book professional. What the hell, dude? So next week, I'm going to get when this book comes out, I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say, uh, your comic book sucks. All right. Well, speaking of no, abuser and the abused, I don't like you having friends no, outside the ziggurat, so we'll talk about this later. But anyway. No, no, no. It's this guy I sort of know. I had no idea he was as big a deal as uh, he apparently is in terms of comics. And he's got this project coming out with Bendis, and I think that's, that's super awesome. Yeah, hopefully so, it's good. I, I want to support him. I want to like Brian Bendis again. It's just, it's been a little bit. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, but this is, this is, I have no reason to think it won't be good. This is just all about me wanting to support this guy. Fair enough. The THN Trade of the Week. For next week goes to Area 510, the hardcover. It's like Area 51, but times 100. Whoa. But times 10. Uh, yeah, times 10, not by 100. I'm an idiot. Sorry. <laughs> this is from Oni. It's 1999. If it was times 100, it'd be a million. So It would this be is Area 5100. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, it would be Area 5150, like the Rush album. This is written by Jay Farber with art by Justin Greenwood. Here's your solicit. Rookie Officer Ward has his hands full with an overbearing partner and a scheming burglary suspect. But when Ward's partner is shockingly killed by aliens, Ward and his suspect, the wily Lucinda, make a run for it. Their destination, Oakland Police HQ, where they hope to find safe haven. But as Ward and Lucinda have numerous alien counters along the way, they fear these attacks aren't random and the aliens are targeting them. We love Jay Farber in the ziggurat. I thought we were going to get our third Oh, hey, remember that guy of the show? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, but like, I we love Jay Farber. He's great. We do love Jay Farber. Yeah, yes. he writes really good comics. Uh, he has chosen to do his own thing and doesn't want to write superhero stuff anymore. And he's been working with Oni for a while. The stuff that he puts out is always good. I don't know why it flies under the radar like it does, because he's a great writer. And the art for this looks really good. I think it sounds fun, too. Go pick it up. You can find links with more info on our picks in our show notes, and we always post our must-read picks on our Discord, Twitter, and Facebook every Wednesday, so you can make an informed buying decision at your local comic shop. But please let us know what you think of our picks in the new comics channel of said Discord. Excelsior! He's gone from here. The evil is gone, and that is it for THN 683. Next week, we're back to reviewing new comics, which is 
equally scary. So if you want to wrap about this week's episode, comics you're reading, or any of the weekly nerdy news that we are following in our nerd news channel on our Discord, hit us up on our live call-in show, THN, cover to cover, this Saturday at 10.30 Central Time. You can watch this broadcast live on Facebook. Or if you want to play along, you got to join the Discord so you can learn how to chat and talk with us live on the show. And we give you a little something to talk about called the question of the week. Joe Patrick, it's been a week and a half. I can't remember crap. Please tell me what we asked these nerds. <laughs> this week's question is courtesy of Brian Domingos. Name an artist that you used to like, but you can't hang with them anymore. You used to love them when they broke in, but they've changed so much that it does not work for you anymore. Now, let's focus on art styles. We're not going to focus on artists that have, like, say, I don't know, become buffoons with their insane racist political opinions. Right, right, right. right. This is all about, like, art styles, guys whose styles have changed and you no longer care for their work. Right. Please keep your question of the week suggestions coming. Uh, We appreciate it. And uh, we do this often, almost every weekend. And so we can't do it without you. And if you can't make it to Cover to Cover Live, shoot an MP3 to two-headed at gmail.com or leave a message on the THN hotline 402-819-4894 and you could be internet famous. Please keep your recorded messages on the shorter side so that we can share the air with all of the live listeners. If you, But don't you worry about timing. We'll cut you off. If you're new to this show and you're proud to show your panties, I assure you it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is... Wait, I have questions. Yeah. Would listening to more episodes of this show make you embarrassed to show your panties? No, I'm talking about people that want to upset your puritanical sensibilities. Okay, much like hell, uh, much like Halloween 30 Years of Terror, that made very little sense. Sure. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital longbox archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like longtime patron and Marvel Lakehouse superintendent. It's not the superintendent. He owns it. He's he's the ghost. No, we own it. Oh, that's right. He's the ghost. Uh, no, that, I guess he I guess he owns it. He yeah, owns it. Yeah, he pays he's the own. ghost that haunts it. Right. He's he lives in the lake house. JD got a catch. Who well, just? But if he's gonna be there, well, he's got to keep the place up. I mean, that one, just, that's what makes him the superintendent. He lives in the past. He's dead, Joe. That's the twist. Come on. Well, then who keeps the place nice? The new girl. She lives there. She gets his letters. They talk about comics. Oh, they fall in love. Come on. I don't even. Did you even watch even this that, movie? <laughs> I didn't even know we had another person to deal with. JD, I can't afford to feed another mouth. Well, we don't talk to her because she doesn't know any of this is going on. JD just gifted us a subscription to Kelly Thompson's Substack so we can check out more of her additional work. What a dude. This, who is this guy? Come on. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. Well, you will hear all kinds of exclusive content. Or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal because you want to impress us and Kelly Thompson. But she's paying attention. She's saying, like, who's who's donating these guys, you know? Yeah, I think that's exactly what will happen. (laughs) Just don't tell her we sent you. (laughs) Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to legendary animator, producer, director, and composer, Jules Bass, the bass in Rankin Bass, who passed away yesterday at the ripe old age of 87 Bass's work had a tremendous impact on many of our childhoods through projects like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, The Year Without a Santa Claus, The Hobbit, Thundercats, Silverhawks, and many others too numerous to mention. Word to you, Mr. Bass, and thanks for all you've meant to us. Yeah, you can bet we're going to crank some of his crap on our Saturday morning cartoon warm-up for cover to cover this week. But until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just bait a bear trap with them. And when you lean over to look, kapow! This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off. Right in the kisser. <laughs> it would make more sense if we have having a f***ing Chucky book. <laughs> <laughs>